Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 258, and it's called What the President is Doing. Because <laughs> you didn't think I wasn't going to talk about this, right? We weren't going to let this go by. All that's swirling around us. We need to talk about what the president is doing because it's really, really serious. Uh, before we do that, speaking of really serious, I've been doing a tour this year. It's called the Introduction to Joy Tour. Uh, and it's about joy, but it's really about death, suffering, darkness, and the temporal fleeting nature of life and how we're all going to die maybe soon. And that in the ancient wisdom tradition, to get to joy... You don't avoid the angst and darkness and unpredictability of life, the heartache and pain. You go into the heart of it, and you come out the other side, and you find joy. So that's what this tour is really about, because that's how that's what joy is really about. So there's only a few cities left. Um, tickets are still up. Uh, Nashville, Atlanta, Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, Santa Cruz. Sacramento, and then the tour ends early December here in Los Angeles at the Lodge Room, and tickets just went up for the second night at the Lodge Room. But as always, it's more fun um, when you're there. And then um, uh, dates just went up for the next round of two days. I do these two-day events where you come here to Los Angeles and we spend two days together. They're about communicating, about giving shape and form to that which is present within you. And, you know, communicating sometimes involves words. <laughs> so it's about uh, that which you're trying to communicate, but at a deeper level, it's about getting unstuck so that you can be on your path and do what you're here to do. And these events, I'm telling you, serious mojo and magic going on uh, with us for two days. So all the info for that is at my site as well. And then there is this lovely woman named Liz Dawn, who lives in the desert, and she invited my friend Liz Gilbert and I to come to Arizona next May and do a three-day event um, in the desert. And you know when my friend Liz Gilbert and I get together, it stuff happens. And uh, so next May, um, this event is called How to Imagine. Because sometimes imagine and imagination gets a little woo-woo, gets a little squishy, a little fuzzy. You with me on that? Um, but imagination has an underbelly. Like the same power you have to create new possibilities can also uh, um, have an underside. It can create worst-case scenarios, and it can run wild with nightmares and reasons why you shouldn't step out and do what you're here to do. So Liz Gibble and I will be exploring imagination and the upsides, downsides, and all the different dimensions. Um, you can get tickets to this through my site or celebrateyourlife.com backslash imagine and you can get to the event site. And of course, Liz and I would love to see you as, at that as well. But now, my friends, we need to talk about what the president is doing. Because it's really, really serious. And I know there's the usual, like there's the uh, people keeping track of how many lies the president has told. So far, it's 13,435. Uh, at first, he averaged about 14 a day. Lately, he's been averaging about 22 a day. So there's uh, just the basic, Inability to tell the truth. Uh, we have horrific repealing of policies that are causing extraordinary harm to the environment, um, pulling out of various accords and arrangements. We've had agreements with other people around the world to take better care of our earth, from uh, the dog whistles on racism to misogyny to 
the mistreatment of immigrants, the misunderstanding of the immigrant experience. I mean, these are all horrific. We're all, yeah, we all get that. Uh, the point of this episode, it's actually way worse than that. Um, and you know me, so there will be at the end of this uh, some light, obviously, because there's always good news. But to get there, we have to be honest about it. It's really, really, really horrific for a number of reasons that don't get a lot of attention in the larger cultural conversation. Um, so perhaps you're one of those who, there's something about this, especially these past three years, that it's hard even for you to intellectually articulate what it is. It's something seriously off, wrong, and destructive happening at some uh, and not to be vague or ambiguous, at some energetic level, there's something about this. It's not just we're taking a bunch of steps back. It's not just a number of people are under serious threat because of this particular president and his actions and policies, etc. Um, but it is something far more historic and spiritual happening. And for those of you who have, like, what is this? I want to give a shot at naming it. So um, here, here we go. I'm going to lay out across history a particular arc and movement. And I want to begin way, way back and work our way to this present moment. And I want to see if doing this helps you then see, oh, that's what this is. Because it's not just the actions. It's not just the tweets. It's something else. So uh, I'm going to take a shot at it, and we'll see. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what we see. Because I know a number of you, you aren't in America. You're listening to this outside of America. And you're, you're watching America, but you're seeing the same patterns and movements happen within your own country. Those of you in Brazil, Australia, our beloved British friends, you are in it. So you are experiencing these forces that are rising up um, in some of their most pure and undiluted forms, and it's profoundly uh, heartbreaking, disturbing, even terrifying at times. So I want to try to name some of what this is and uh, see if by going back it doesn't help us understand this moment and give us hope and steps and courage going forward. So first... Let's go way back in history. Let's go back thousands of years. Uh, you're, let's say you're born thousands of years ago, and you're born into a tribe. So brothers, sisters, cousins, aunt, uncles, the tribe is all related by blood, by blood, blood relation. And so you have a loyalty to the tribe based on this biological blood relationship that you have with all these people in the tents in your tent and the tents around you. And so there's a tribal elders, and those tribal elders have children. And mostly what happens when the tribal elders die is the ones next in line take over the tribe because they have the same blood. You probably, when the tribal elder dies, you probably don't um, go to the neighboring tribes and ask people to submit resumes and do a job search. You probably don't check LinkedIn, correct? Leadership 
is transferred because of bloodline. Now, you may have an alpha, you may have a warrior, you may have somebody with particular talent, and then that becomes, well, does the tribal elder's son or daughter take over? Because there's a cousin who's actually way better, and everybody actually thinks she's amazing. So you can see how there is a little tension between merit, talent, skill, charisma, and blood relation. You can see how that's endlessly going to be a point of tension and contention. But, but, but larger overall, the tribe functions according to blood relations and loyalty to each other. Now, the tribe needs certain resources to survive, to live, and access to those resources. So if you don't actually possess the resources as a tribe, perhaps there's a neighboring tribe who does have the resources you need. You have horses, they have water. You have corn, they have access to a forest where there's excellent hunting in that forest. So if you can't meet all of the needs of the tribe to survive, and another tribe does have some of those needs, and you have things they need, you enter into some sort of partnership, some sort of bartering, some sort of alliance in order to survive, because staying alive is going to take everything you have. Now imagine if there's a tribe nearby that gets a technology that you don't have. That's terrifying, because this tribe, you've got like bows and arrows and slingshots, and they get metal spears and swords, terrifying. By the way, side note, parentheses, this is the whole David and Goliath story, is the Philistines get a certain kind of metal that the Israelite tribe doesn't have. That's why the description of Goliath is all about his armor and his weaponry, because this is the age-old terror. What happens when your neighbor has weaponry you don't have, like a sword or a nuclear bomb? It's an age-old terror. So what do you do if your neighbor gets a technology that you don't have? Or your neighbor gets more powerful. They simply multiply faster and there's more of them and their army is bigger than yours. Well, you probably go to another tribe and you say to them, listen, on our own, that tribe is going to wipe us out. They'll also wipe you out on your own. But if we team up, we can hold them in check. So in a tribal-centric culture, you have this blood loyalty to each other to stay alive. You're constantly doing everything you can to amass power to further the strength of your own tribe and bloodline in order to stay alive. And you exist in a constant, tenuous state of alliance and partnership with other tribes fragile sometimes at best, sometimes enduring and long-lasting, but nevertheless, the whole thing at some level is like on eggshells. You never know when this tribe might do this or that tribe might do that. And obviously from human history, we have endless records of this tribe, went into that tribe, slaughtered all the men, took the women and children back, burned up all the tents, uh, and took all the animals and spoils of war home with them. So this we have record of this over thousands of years of history. This happened often. And then a tribe was, in, was assimilated into the other tribe, and the tribe essentially disappeared forever. So this happened again and again and again. You can see how this tenuous state of existence organized around our survival and these partnerships you can see how something in the human experience longed for greater peace and stability. 
there's got to be some better way to organize ourselves. And so you can see what happened. And once again, I am simplifying to such a massive degree here, okay? So this is incredible simplification of human history and the evolving of human arrangements of societies and order. Nevertheless, stay with me at the most simple level. You can see what happened over time is you have a sort of ache within the human bones. This arrangement, uh, wouldn't it be great if we could live with a little more stability and a little more order and a little more peace? And you can see what emerged is eventually there was a tribal elder who got really powerful. Really, really powerful. And that tribal, that tribe, their leader, had so much power and such a large army, and maybe even the charisma and the leadership ability and the weaponry that that leader said to the other tribes, tell you what, you submit to me follow me, bow down to me, bend the knee to me, and then I'll use all of my power to protect you and keep you safe. And so what happened is you went from loose arrangements of tribes is the emergence of something called a monarchy, a king or a queen, mostly a king, sometimes a queen. So you, what you have is this new arrangement of a centralized leader one king to rule them all. And so what happened is that essentially a deal was made. Submit to me, and then I will protect you. And then the king would arrange a government, would arrange an economy, would arrange, okay, you, you give them the water, you give them the horses, I'll provide the bread, you make that forest available, you make the crop from that harvest available to those tribes over there. You had a larger... Uh, some way centralized leader. And what that did is it brought about a new level of, let's call it rule, stability, peace. Now, obviously the king could just lop off people's heads. So it was peace, sort of. But nevertheless, it was, and here's the giant idea, a step forward. By the way, side television side note, that's what's happening in Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is about this tension between a tribal arrangement and this new arrangement of a centralized king. Because tribal loyalty meant us and us alone, blood and loyalty over everything else. But we also, our tribe, we're not the biggest, and these other tribes are a little bit more powerful, and if we're not careful, we're going to get wiped out. So what you have in Game of Thrones you know nothing, Jon Snow. What you have in Game of Thrones is this tension between a tribal-centric arrangement of society and a larger monarchy. Yes, uh, we are loyal to each other. Our tribe is the most important thing to us. But if we bend the knee to this king or this queen, then we could have a little peace we could have a little stability. We could raise our children without the constant specter of war. So essentially, for like eight seasons, what that show is doing you, what that show is doing for you is showing you this tension between an earlier and a later way of organizing ourselves. And you lose something, but then you gain something. Now the king is 
the structure. So the king issues an edict, it's the, it's the law. The king issues a decree, that's what everybody has to do. The king issues a proclamation, that's just how it is. Nobody gets to argue with the king. If you argue with the king, he takes off your head. And for the king, if you aren't loyal, you're probably going to die pretty soon. So the king is the highest form of authority, and to exist in the kingdom is to submit yourself to the will of the king. The king sets it up how it works, and you submit to the king. Now, what this did is this brought a new kind of rule and stability into the world. Now, it was also chaotic and people died left and right and there was slaughter everywhere. But you can see in the largest, largest arc of history how this move from tribes to monarchy actually brought a new level of structure and stability to things. Here's why. What happens in a tribe... If your tribe is being harassed by another tribe, what do you do? Who do you go to? You can't call the police. There is none. You're on your own. You're on your own. But you see what happens with a king at some level. Once again, incredibly simplifying. You're having a problem. What do you do? You go to the king. Yeah. You present yourself in the great hall and you make your case to the king and the king listens. You go to Khaleesi. And you tell her about the plight of your people. And hopefully the king listens and maybe issues a new decree or an edict or a proclamation to protect you, to defend you, to make sure that you have enough. So the baker comes and says, I'm being undercut by these two villages older, over. This, this isn't fair. The shoemaker, the, who, the winemaker says, the, the sister and, the king, and, and a good king says, ah, and then the king tweaks the system so that it's more fair, so that it's more just, so people are all taken care of. The king charges some taxes. The king uses that to protect you. You can see how the king was actually a giant step forward. Now, there's also a glitch. There's a glitch. Notice how the move from tribes to king, the move from tribes had ways of, of maintaining some sort of stability and rule and, and some sort, but it wasn't enough. It's almost like the human experience. This arrangement worked until it didn't. Something within the human experience. We want more. We want more freedom. We want less oppression. We want more peace and stability. We want more room for expression. We don't just want life to be survival. We want to move beyond just getting through the day. We want more. Do you see this, by the way? Built into the human experience, we want more. We don't just want to spend all day trying to stay alive. We want more than survival. We want flourishing. We want happiness. We want love. We want expression. We want to explore. So you can see how this move from tribes to king was actually a step forward. Now, there's a glitch with the whole monarch thing. And uh, let me show you an example. This is uh, actually, there's a pattern here in the Bible, which is a pattern in human history, of course. But 2 Kings chapter 5, King Jotham comes to power. He reigns in Jerusalem 16 years. His mother's name was Jerusha, daughter of Zadok. Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. Now, in the Hebrew scriptures, when it says he did what was right 
in the eyes of the Lord. That's He lived according to Torah. And what that means is he had a heart for the immigrant. He took care of the widow, the poor, and the refugee. He made sure that people left a corner of their field when they were harvesting so that the poor would have something to eat. Um, he used his power to protect the vulnerable. He specifically had an ear and he was bent towards making sure that there wasn't a widening gap between rich and poor. That's what it means when it says did, did uh, good in the eyes of the Lord. He's, he kept a certain protection over the rights of the people so that people could flourish. Now, uh, Jotham dies. He rested with his ancestors, end of 2 Kings chapter 15, and he was buried in the city of David, the city of his father, and Ahaz, his son, succeeded him. Now, unlike his father, Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. He followed the ways of the neighboring kings, and he even sacrificed his son in the fire. So there you get just a couple of verses, but you notice what happens there. There's a good king who organizes things in a good way for that time in that space, at that period of history. But then Jotham, the good king, dies. His son becomes king. Once again, remember, blood loyalty. They don't do applications for king. They don't go on ZipRecruiter to find out who has the best resume to become king. This will come into play later. The kingship just goes to the next in line according to blood. Ahaz comes to power, and he's not like his father or his grandfather. He does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it's like the writer goes, oh, by the way, when I say he didn't do right, here's what I mean. He offered his child in an act of child sacrifice. That's what we mean by he didn't do right. Okay? So serious, serious, serious evil. Now, you can see why this is so huge in human history. Is the relationship among tribes created this tenuous, constant state of flux among tribes, and something within the human spirit said there's got to be more. There's got to be some better way to organize ourselves. And so you had this emergence of the monarchy, the king, which was in some level a step forward. But then there's a glitch, because if the highest way that we've organized ourselves is the king, if that's the authority, if that's the ultimate transcendent rule, if the center that we all rotate around is the king. The king sets the laws. The king shows us ethics, religion, government, economy. If the king is the one we go to for justice, if the king is the center as opposed to just survival among tribes, that center, when there's a good king, it's better. There's more peace, more stability, more human flourishing. But then what happens when the king dies? and the king's son comes to power, and the king's son is evil. So you can see in the larger arc of history how this arrangement of the king was a step forward, but then it also, just like the earlier stage, at some point wasn't able, it had a glitch in it, it couldn't keep up. Because expanding human understanding and maturity, enlightenment is a word uh, that you could use, was like, wait, this system, mm -mm. we need something to center ourselves around that is more 
permanent, more transcendent. We need something higher than just a human being, because sometimes human beings are good, but sometimes they're really destructive. If the king is the highest we can come up with, we run the risk that the king will die and the king's son will come to power, and that guy might be horrible. So you can see what happened. Once again, huge simplification, is this idea began to percolate in the human story over the past few thousand years. We need a higher center. We need a more transcendent center to arrange ourselves around. We need ideas and truths and ideals that are bigger than just one person. So instead of the highest good resting in just a person, we need the highest good resting in the will of the people, not just the will of one person, but the will of all the people. What if everybody had a say? What if our leaders represented the best interests of all the people? What if we had something called rule of law, which means to live together, we all agreed to live according to certain rules. Otherwise, we would have complete chaos. Uh, what if we could uh, take these ideals about life, liberty, justice, equality, freedom from oppression? Uh, well, we should probably write them down. Well, what should we call it? Uh, let's call it a constitution. How about a bill of rights that protects everybody? Think about uh, in a tribe, what happens a tri in a tribe if somebody from another tribe comes and wrongs you? They steal things from you. Who do you appeal to? There's no police. There's no court. There's no larger structure. So you can see how with the king, you at least had somebody you could go to. Hey, my neighbor keeps stealing stuff. And the king could hear your case or one of the king's magistrates. But even then, that king could be horrible and refuse, and you had no rights. So you can see where the idea of everybody having rights, fairness, trial, due process, protection under the law, you can see why these ideas were huge, is they freed people from having to constantly live in the state of survival, spending all of their energies just trying to stay alive and argue their case. There was a system that was in place that was there to protect you so that you could pursue life, liberty, and happiness. I know some of these ideas are so, we grew up with them in history class. We've heard them so much, especially when we hear lawmakers talk about the Constitution in ways that, that something about it doesn't feel right to us. But you can see where these ideas in their origins were radical ideas about human justice, equality and flourishing. These were new ideas to move beyond old ideas of kings, queens, and systems that had serious glitches in them. It's like the human spirit just kept going. It needed a new arrangement. Now, the king just cleared everything up. Very black and white with the king. The king says this, the king says that. The king announced this, the king announced that. When, it's at the, when you're at the will and mercy of one person, it's more simple. If the king decides to rearrange the economy, the king just does it. So you can see at these earlier stages, things were more simple. You could get way more done, unless of course the king's policy didn't favor you. Then you had no voice whatsoever. So giant idea here. When you move in to this next stage of arranging ourselves, democracy, representative government, the will of the people, you moved into a stage 
that had way more freedom for human flourishing, but it was also way messier, way messier, much more like an art experiment. Yeah, and at one level, way less efficient because nobody just gets to exert their will on the masses. Everybody gets a vote, which means you're gonna get all the voices, which means it's gonna take way, way longer. But that very system is also gonna create possibilities that aren't there at the earlier stage. At the earlier stage, the king decides this is how it is. There's nothing you can do. You wanna resist, fine. You're going to jail or you're gonna have your head chopped off. In this new system, you get a voice. Everybody gets a voice. You get to vote. You might even become a leader. They might vote for you. This opened up all sorts of radical new possibilities. It also means everything's going to take longer and it's going to be way more frustrating at some level, unless you wanna go back to the old thing where you don't have any rights where it's all at the whim of one person. <sighs> See what I'm saying? Now, here's why this is so huge. We're honestly, we're only a couple hundred years into this new arrangement, right? We're only a couple hundred years into this particular kind of democracy. This is new in human history. This is new. It's forward movement towards humans flourishing together. It's also messy and it's also new if you look at the larger scope of things. We haven't worked out all the kinks. We don't know where it's vulnerable. We have ideas. We have several hundred years, of course, but we also, it's been tested. We've seen where it's weak. We've seen where it's strong, but, oh, do you wanna go back? We should probably just stop right now. Do you want to go back? Anybody? Want to go back to a some sort of monarch who just says how it is? Because there are people around the world who, I mean, there are a number of dictators right now in the world who rule with an iron fist, who have shut down the media, who have put all of the opposition in prison. Their family hasn't seen them in years. We could go back. We could go back. Uh, yeah, we don't want to go back, do we? Okay, so that means we go forward. But this thing that we go forward into, messy, little ugly at times. Everybody gets like, I don't know about you, but an open mic, whew, an open where everybody can just come up to the mic and say whatever they want, ooh, brutal, <laughs> right, right? That's ugly. Yeah, so that's what we're in right now. We're in this new experiment that has as its heart uh, the desire for greater human freedom justice, equality, and flourishing. Now, uh, there's all sorts of places we can go from here. I'm trying to think where to go next because now let's go into this moment. Here's the thing about the president. The president that we have right now, what the president is doing is the president is dragging the whole thing backwards into an earlier stage of arrangement. That's what you're seeing right now. That's what's going on. This president either doesn't understand or understands but willfully ignores the higher ideals at the heart of this experience. This president operates from an earlier stage of consciousness. What that means, if you go back to monarch and then you go back to tribes, is that what the president is doing is everything gets run through a particular filter and every question goes back to 
does this shore up his power and sense of self, sense of power and sense of domination. So this system that we are in, this giant, wonderful experiment that is designed for all of us to flourish, one of its capacities is anybody can be elected because the will of the people. And what we did in this election is somebody got elected who actually has an earlier understanding of how the whole thing works. This is why it's so dizzying and maddening and infuriating and confusing and why it's so unbelievably dangerous is the actions of this particular president and the mindset and consciousness that it reflects are actually dragging the whole thing backwards. So all these little data points that have you going, this is so wrong, yes, are undergirded by a movement backwards to an earlier, uh, you could say like a monarch, you could say like a tribal chief. Um, it's all an earlier relationship when the center is a person. Now, a couple of things, obviously very obvious, obviously very obvious, but let's go through them anyway. Number one, loyalty. What the president is doing is making loyalty the highest form of service. So all government employees, all politicians, all Americans, everything gets run through, are you or are you not loyal to this particular person? Well, that's how tribal elders and that's how kings functioned. You're either loyal to me or then you are seditious, you are treasonous, and you need to be removed. That's why all critique of this president, this president declares is treasonous behavior because this president has conflated the state, the government, the nation with his self. If you are not loyalty to the president, then you are not loyalty to the whole thing, which takes us back to kings and tribal chiefs. This president cannot distinguish between the two. Yeah, yeah, you see why this is so huge. This is why the loyalty, so-and-so is loyal, so-and-so is not. You can see also that when the tribal chief died and somebody took over, the tribal, the head of the tribe, became whoever had blood relationship with the tribal elder who had passed on. So when loyalty then, you don't get the person who is the best at this, you don't get the most intelligent person, you don't get the person who has served faithfully the best with airtight integrity. Under loyalty, what you get is the person who is most loyal. So the talent, the integrity, the service mindset, the heart that has the will and the best interest of the people in mind, all eventually leave because that's not the highest transcendent good in play here. In this particular world we're finding ourselves in, loyalty then becomes the highest good, which loyalty number two, nepotism. In earlier stages, the people who came to power, the king's children became the king and queen when the king died, not the person who would be best at being king which is why literally what the president is doing is giving offices in the White House to the president's children. This, my friends, this sort of blatant public nepotism, 
would have been lovely several thousand years ago in a more tribal monarchic setting, um, but we're not in one of those. Yeah. By the way, this is also why, remember that cabinet meeting where everybody in the cabinet had to go around and tell the president basically how awesome he is? Yeah. That's why the meeting doesn't begin with how do we best serve the people? It begins with, let me make sure everybody in this room is loyal to the president. Yeah, that's what this is. That's what you are witnessing. It's dragging the whole thing backwards to an earlier era when the center of authority was around a person, not these higher ideals of rule of law, democracy. This is why then, when the center is a person, then all of the systems and processes are used by that person as tools for their own shoring up of power and sense of self. You see why that's so huge? The Constitution is higher than anybody. Uh, the rule of law is higher than nobody. We would say nobody is above the law. But when you are operating in a state of consciousness, in a mindset that sees this person as the center, then all of what were once higher ideals simply become tools to be used. So that's why what this president is doing is when somebody is challenging the president, well, then that person's violating the Constitution. Well, then that person isn't a good patriot. Well, then that person isn't submitting to the rule of law. See, what you do is you use these ideals to criticize somebody when the person is resisting your leadership because these are simply become tools, not ideals that we all submit to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> By the way, side note, when you haven't cultivated a center as a person, when you haven't gone on the path of death and resurrection, when you haven't oriented your life around the pursuit of spiritual maturity, when you have no center, then your center is a giant gaping hole and it is insatiable in its need. Its hunger is never abated. It can never win enough. It can never dominate enough. It can never be noticed and stroked enough. When you have no center, there's no way to ever be satisfied because you're always one victory, one tweet, one act of domination, one insult away from proving that you're good enough, worthy enough, you really are the alpha, you really are the greatest president ever, when you haven't cultivated a center that is peace and calm and stillness, then when, it, when you haven't cultivated a center that knows the satisfaction of love, of grace, of a meal with friends, of a walk down the street. Are you with me on this? When you haven't cultivated a center, then you are insatiably hungry for the next victory. You're insatiably hungry for another person to tell you how awesome you are. You can't get enough of the ego strokes that come from another win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the personal is always the political. The political is always the personal. Systems develop the characteristics of whoever's running the system. Uh, 
this is all uh, happening in our midst as we watch. So for hundreds of years, people have fought, and, and, uh, and not to be dramatic, people have died for these higher ideals where everybody belongs. But at earlier stages, not everybody belongs. At earlier stages, stuck in the binary, some people belong, but people who aren't loyal, people who aren't like us, people who don't submit to this person, then they don't belong. So it's constantly, constantly doing border patrol. Who is with us? Who's not? Who's loyal? Who's not? Who's a patriot? Who's not? Earlier stages. Now, let's go back to tribes. And here's the huge, huge, huge thing. Remember when you're part of a tribe. When you're part of a tribe, the other tribes are threats. In a tribal conscious culture organized around tribal loyalties, at any moment, that tribe could come over the hill and wipe your tribe out. So you think about brain development, early limbic reptile brain, the base of the brain is constantly on high alert. Obviously, forming alliances and partnerships is a huge part of calming that down. But nevertheless, you are constantly doing threat assessment. Is this person for us or against us? Is this person part of our tribe or not? Are they loyal or not? Because this threat assessment and this judging of everybody about whether they're in your tribe or not, it kept you alive. So thousands of years ago, this impulse was absolutely necessary for your survival. We're so glad our ancestors did this, otherwise we wouldn't be here. But what happens with each new stage of arrangement and understanding is earlier impulses are integrated. We don't get rid of them. They get integrated as higher transcendent ideas and ideals begin to capture us. So you can see why what this president is doing in dragging everything backwards is taking everything back to, are they for us or against us? Are they with us or not? Are they Americans or not? Those, those congresswomen, they should go back to their countries. You see what that is? That is a way, 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 way earlier impulse that we have spent tens of thousands of years moving beyond. And the great invitation of this new experiment we're in is to find a place for everybody. Now, it also has firm boundaries about certain things are not allowed. Your, uh, your rights are protected. The diversity is good. But you can see, when everything gets dragged backwards, suddenly we're back making all of those categories and lists again. See, these things that are happening to you and I are they're not just policies. They're not just political agendas. They're not just presidential tweets. But they are deep streams of spiritual energies and postures. And underneath it all, uh, to, to make it as clean and simple as possible, what we've seen across the universe for literally billions of years is the universe unfolding into greater complexity, greater inclusion, and greater freedom. And what happens at every new step and stage in the human experience is we can move forward in love. We can take whatever new thing that is happening, 
whatever new disturbance, whatever new diversity, whatever new idea, whatever new challenge, and we can embrace it and say, okay, this is different, this is new, interesting, this is going to take a little something, and we can get bigger as we integrate it and figure out how to work with it and how to have it add to the depth and richness of the human experience, or we cannot move towards it in love, we can move away from it in fear. So, for example, uh, in America here, the population of America is more diverse than ever, ethnically, racially diverse. You can move into this new challenge of diversity and see it as an opportunity. You can move into it with love. Oh, look at this. Look what all sorts of new things we're going to learn. Look how much bigger, wider, richer, more colorful, more interesting this will make us. Or you can see it as the other. You can see it with fear, and then you can move away from it. You can dig in your heels, and you can long for an earlier time when we used to be great, which is all an illusion anyway. You can see where these deeper energetic postures of love or fear are constantly at work. They're constantly moving underneath all of this. The world has changed. There are new technologies that have disrupted pretty much everything. Now these disruptions can be seen as new opportunities to bring everybody along, to figure out new places and spaces for all of us to thrive. And that's not, by the way, sort of utopian fuzzy language. That's actually the task here as humans. How do we all thrive together? You can see these as opportunities that take our best intelligence, our best compassion, our best courage, or you can find an enemy, blame that enemy, insist that you're right, and drag the whole thing backwards. You see how all of this goes down to some very, very basic spiritual postures, impulses. They're biological, they're societal, they're sociological, they're also spiritual. Yes, this, my friends, is what is going on in our midst. So these systems that we have in place, inquiries, House, Senate, impeachment proceedings, trials, questions, councils, all of this was set up so that nobody could make themselves the center. These structures that we have in place for several hundred years now, and once again, the whole thing's an experiment, we're learning. What we are experiencing now is somebody, and what this president is doing is challenging this new experiment. He's challenging all these systems because at every stage when the system is about everybody submitting to it so that all can thrive, what this president is doing is making it about himself, making the things center around him. So you think about uh, one casualty already or one challenge already would be journalism, the media, the reporting of truth, the telling of the story, the shining of light so that we know what's really happening. So as soon as that uh, turns into, are you for or against the president, that becomes loyalty and that drags, that makes a person the center of the whole thing. Now, 
everybody's got a little blood on their hands, let's be honest here. And once again, these issues uh, are way bigger than Republicans versus Democrats. This is about systems that can protect these ideals or systems that fall prey to the efforts of a few, this president, and then obviously people with money. See, the whole system, the whole system's a little wobbly, right? The whole system's getting tested. So for those of you who are like, what is going on here? Why is my head spinning with all this? One of the answers would simply be, because for several hundred years now, we've had our neural pathways formed by a particular understanding that this system was not built around a person, but it was built around these higher ideals. But then this person has come along and this person is poking and pressing and prodding and testing every square inch of these systems and these processes. Anytime the system says, no, you submit to these higher ideals just like everybody else, what the president is doing is poking and immediately comes out swinging and fighting. Really? 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 It's as if something came along to say every single one of these systems that you've always assumed was there, right? Right? Like you and I, like you were raised with, if the president breaks the law, like then the president doesn't get to be president, right? Like, duh. <laughs> like if the president were to like get some other country and use that other country to try and like defeat his opponent, well, like the president couldn't do that. Like the, the president can't just have like family members in the White House like doing stuff that we don't even really know what it is and access to like super top secret stuff. Like you can't just do that. Well, yeah, that's what the president's doing. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what the president is poking and prodding and testing this entire, entire thing. <coughs> Excuse me. So this, might, this is why, my friends, this time is so strange, is a bunch of bedrock truths that we all assumed were like airtight. It turns out they're not as airtight as we thought. They're not as resilient. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. There's a, that's the question in the air. Can this system, this new stage, can it handle a threat? Because here's what happens. In times of disruption and instability, you as a person, me as a person, think about the times in your life that were most difficult, heartache, loss, trauma, disorientation. We can either allow that disorientation to break us open. Maybe you lost somebody you love. Maybe you went through an addiction. Maybe you went uh, through the loss of a job and it just broke your heart. You, you found yourself just wondering, what's it even mean? You either let that pain break you open and you move to new states of peace, calm, grounded integrity. You move into greater maturity or you regress. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody you love and the pain of the argument, the, the anger, the pressure of the argument, you said a bunch of things that you never would say normally yeah, yeah, you regressed in that moment, right? See, the personal is the political, the political is the personal. This thing that happens to you and I when we're tested, when we're pressed, when things have changed, and we don't know what the new territory is, things don't work like they used to, the temptation is always to revert to an earlier 
stage. Or we can name it for what it is, we can let it break us, and then we move forward into new inclusion, complexity, freedom, and thriving. The world is under great turmoil and challenge right now for a number of reasons. And what happened is a whole group of people, well, let's, let's back up. The question is, will we let this new pain and disorientation break us open to new arrangements and new futures that are even better? Or a number of people, as we're seeing, are digging in their heels and going the other direction, going backwards. Now, uh, let's end with something good here, shall we? Because this can be like dark. And if you find yourself thinking, yeah, that's just a big question. Well, how is the question going to be answered? Excellent question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because this thing is under massive, massive threat. This beautiful ideal, messy, nevertheless beautiful idea of our shared common thriving together. Uh, it's under massive, massive threat. Like long historic evolutionary threat. Uh, now, uh, one thing. There's been a bunch of research because uh, in the past three years, especially when the president first became the president, there were all sorts of marches. And the question is, how come there don't seem to be as many marches, right? Remember the Women's March, all these incredibly thrilling moments? And uh, what we're now learning is that they've done a bunch of studies on all the people who were marching a couple of years ago. And, what we're, and uh, the research is coming back that <sighs> they aren't marching as much because people have gotten involved. You see why this is so beautiful? It's the people who got marching, got marching and got fired up and then are getting involved. So they're not marching because they're rolling up their sleeves. Uh, you, I would bet, know more now than you did four years ago, five years ago, six years ago. You, you know more know, now about how the thing works. You know more about how it can go off the rails. Uh, you're having discussions with your 10-year-old daughter about what an impeachment inquiry is and how it works and the upsides, the downsides, the history of it, et cetera, why people push for it, why they don't push for it, all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're more involved, my friends. We're more involved. We know more. We know more. We want to know more. Uh, we're getting more informed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see what this whole thing is doing at some level. At some level, this pain, you see? The pain wakes us up. It can wake us up, or we check out and we numb the pain. When pain comes, we let it wake us up and we listen to it, or we build up defenses and we numb ourselves to it. And what we're noticing is millions and millions and millions of people are waking up, and the pain is moving them into greater engagement, greater knowledge, greater passion about the process, policy. Now, one more thought. Perhaps you grew up in a world of rules, uh, structures, uh, maybe you grew up in a world, maybe even had a religious veneer to it, of fundamentalism. So words like authority, structure, rule of law, process, policy, uh, maybe these sorts of words for you growing up represent for you an earlier uh, world. So what happened is you grew up with these kinds of words, but then you discovered journey, freedom, expression, and you left behind what felt like confining and narrowing words in favor of free, maybe you like the word spontaneous better than you like the word structure. Um, maybe you're part of a business 
and you're less interested in words like hierarchy and more interested in words like partnership, yeah, of course, of course. Uh, for many people, these words that you grew up with feel confining, narrow, and kind of exclusive, conservative. They represent to you an old way that felt stifling and claustrophobic and got in the way of you being you. I love it. I'm totally with you. I got it. Here's the problem. A number of those words are absolutely necessary. Yeah, for sewer systems to work and electrical grids to work and roads to be functioning and stoplights to work for all this. Process, policy, rules, structures, councils, local governments, ordinances, standing committees, all that boring, unsexy stuff is absolutely necessary for all of us to flourish. It's absolutely necessary. So right now, in the terror of this moment and this chaos and this what is happening to our basic structures of government across the board, the economy, all of a sudden, lots of people are going, hey, wait, 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 isn't there a process if the president breaks the law? Like, isn't there a policy for making sure that candidates can't accept too much money from gun lobby? Like, isn't there like a law about this? Yes, yes, yes. I would argue that a whole bunch of ideas got left behind and they're actually absolutely vital to our thriving. And they're not that sexy. I mean, you want to stop Thanksgiving dinner and bring it to a screeching halt? Just say, I'd like to discuss policies. <laughs> oh, Try this at Thanksgiving when some relative starts going off. Just say, um, well, what is the proper process in that particular area? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. Yeah. Not the funnest stuff to talk about. And yet, absolutely necessary. Yeah. So one of the things that's happening is we are reclaiming some of these, the Constitution. Well, doesn't the Constitution? Yeah. We probably should ask what the Constitution has in it. <laughs> yeah, because it's intended for moments like this. Yeah, yeah. So before this turns into a civics class, here's, here's, <laughs> here's the beautiful truth. Uh, some structures are good. Yeah, yeah, some structures are good. Some forms are absolutely necessary. They give us what we need so that we can fly, so that we can thrive. And what you're seeing right now is an epic battle over those very structures and forms. And it's really, really, really important. So you, uh, in the midst of this political season that we find ourselves in, let's go back to the personal. Because all of our pain, all of our heartache, all of our loss, all of our uncertainty and angst and anxiety about the future... The invitation isn't to invite spirit into all of it. It's to turn it into a prayer. The impulses within you that want to regress, that want to dig in your heels, that want to go back to an earlier time, uh, that want to revert, uh, that's all there. That's the temptation. But you can also say to the pain, break me, open me up so that I might see new possibilities I hadn't seen before. Uh, is there some new, better way of arranging ourselves? Because uh, some of these ways of arranging ourselves aren't 
working. And for you, perhaps you're living your life in such a way that's not working. So you're in tremendous pain. And instead of numbing that pain or avoiding it, you go into the heart of it and you start asking better questions. What, what do I need to rearrange? Do I need to move? Do I need to quit this job? Do I need to approach raising this child in a totally different way? Do I need to become a completely different kind of employee? Do I need to approach this entire thing from a new perspective? So the pain then becomes an invitation to imagination, to a whole new tomorrow. So yeah, some of this is really dark. Some of this is really frightening. Some of this, especially when people's rights are trampled on, especially when families are split apart, like this is really, really, really serious. But within it is a serious invitation to confront what needs to be confronted and then to raise questions about are there better ways we can arrange ourselves and then each of us and where do I fit in that? Yeah, yeah, there's an invitation in all of this. So there, my friends, there's a few, there's a few things that this president is doing. I begin with a belief that spirits and all of it, some of it's really, really bad. It's horrible. It's degrading. It's violating. And yet spirits in there somewhere inviting us to courage, to spine, to resistance, to greater intelligence, to greater knowledge, to just basic information, to becoming more informed. There's an invitation in all of it. There's an invitation in all of it. There's always good news somewhere, even in the worst even in the worst, there's an invitation in there somewhere. And you, my brothers and sisters, may grace and peace be with you now more than ever. <laughs>